Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Robert Lefkowitz will join us to discuss the adventures of an accidental scientist. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, science is filled with many ups and downs, and especially for those who make it to the very highest levels, including the Nobel Prize. And joining us today to discuss his story is Dr. Robert Lefkowitz. Dr. Lefkowitz is the well-known Nobel Prize-winning scientist who is best known for showing how adrenaline works via stimulation of specific receptors. He was trained at Columbia, the National Institute of Health, and Harvard before joining the faculty at Duke University in 1973. And a new memoir regarding his career entitled A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Stockholm, The Adrenaline-Fueled Adventures of an Accidental Scientist. Dr. Lefkowitz, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. My pleasure indeed. Very uh, fascinating, very entertaining memoir you've put together here about the career. Why did you decide to put the memoir together? Well, uh, it's a very good question. I tend to be a bit of a raconteur, always telling stories. And for many years now, fellows, students, friends, acquaintances have been saying, Bob, you know, you really need to write down all these funny stories uh, and interesting stories that you've got. I don't think I would have actually ever done it if it weren't from a specific entreaty from one of my former postdoctoral fellows from the 90s, a guy named Randy Hall, now a professor of pharmacology at Emory University, visiting for a basketball game a few years ago. And he said, Bob, you really need to write these stories up. I said, Randy, I'm never going to do it. He said, how about this? He said, you remember that book by Richard Feynman called Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman, where he related his stories. This is the Nobel Prize winning physicist related his stories to a former student of his. And they wrote it up together. I said, sure. He says, why don't we do that? Why don't you tell me your stories? I'll write them up. You edit them. We'll put together the book. And so it started. And for about a year, we spoke about two hours a week. He recorded everything, told my stories. But we didn't just want to publish it as just a disembodied, interesting and amusing stories. And we developed a narrative framework, which is basically my autobiography, into which we inserted these stories. It's getting some very nice original reviews right now. You say you're an accidental scientist. Why characterize yourself as that? Well, I characterize myself as an accidental scientist because I had absolutely no intention of being a scientist. From the time I was about eight years old as a little boy growing up in Bronx, New York City, I had one goal in mind. I wanted to be a physician, a practicing doctor. I idolized my family physician, Dr. Joseph Fibish, who made house calls in the Bronx. And I thought, what could be better than this? This guy comes to the house when you feel sick. He has all this special knowledge that other people don't have. He's got this great black bag out of which he takes all kinds of cool instruments like a stethoscope and an otoscope and his prescription pad. And then, you know, he puts hands on you and he uses all his special knowledge to make you feel better. And I said to myself, nothing could be better than that. I mean, what a, what a great thing to do with my life. And so I went straight through from then on, never wondering what I would do, right through medical school at Columbia 
from which I graduated in 1966. And 1966 was the peak of the Vietnam War. And in addition to a lottery draft for all men over 18, and it was a lottery, they literally picked your name out of hat, basically, there was not a lottery draft, but there was conscription. All physicians were drafted right out of medical school, and you joined either the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, or the United States Public Health Service. Now, the United States Public Health Service was a very popular way to go because many of their assignments were stateside, and so you would avoid actually serving in Vietnam, where many of us did not want to serve because we viewed it as at least an immoral war, if not an illegal one. The competition to get into the public health service was very, very intense. Now, one of the most sought-after assignments that they had was to assign you to either the CDC that we hear a lot about these days or the NIH that we also hear a lot about these days. But everybody wanted to do it. So they were able to essentially get the best and the brightest. And because I had good grades and good standing, I was accepted into the public health service, assigned to the NIH for two years, uh, which I did after doing one year of internship and residency. And so from 68 to 70, I went to the NIH where we helped take care of the patients who were having clinical research studies done on them. And then we were also assigned to a, a laboratory to learn how to do research ourselves. That's not why I went there. I went there basically because the other uh, branches of service looked very unappealing during that war. And there at the NIH, after a year of miserable failure, which was a new experience for me because I had not really experienced much failure in my life, I began to get the hang of doing research. But I basically decided to finish my clinical training because I wasn't really fully convinced that I really should incorporate research into my career. But then uh, I went to Boston, the Massachusetts General Hospital, where I, in addition to doing more clinical work in medicine and cardiology, I realized that I missed the research very much and began gravitating back to the laboratory. So the accidental business is that were it not for the Vietnam War, my being drafted into the public health service and assigned to the NIH, I never would have become a scientist, and I think I would have very happily practiced medicine and cardiology for my entire career. And let me just add that I am not unique in this regard at all. It was a remarkable training ground for physician scientists, which is what I consider myself because I both do clinical work or have done clinical work and research. But consider this mind-numbing statistic. In the peak years of the Vietnam War between 1964 and 1972, there were maybe anywhere from 50 to 100 young physicians being assigned to the NIH each year. Not a big number. And virtually none of us had any significant background in research. And very few of us at that stage were at all intent on having a research career. Nonetheless, during that eight-year period, 10 10 of us would go on to ultimately win the Nobel Prize. Uh, it's a staggering statistic. So I'm far from unique in that regard. This is also coming in at a time when the NIH support was growing, and it's changed a little bit now, hasn't it? Indeed it has. You know, it's interesting. Our group uh, collectively, I mean, there was a, uh, had an interesting moniker, a nickname, in that technically the name for our program was the Associate Training Program of the United States Public Health Service, ATP, Associate Training Program. But we were generally, initially derisively referred to as the Yellow Berets. This was a takeoff on the Green Berets, our elite, most elite fighting forces, special forces in Vietnam. Yellow, I guess, meant to denote cowardice. But ultimately, because of the remarkable success 
of the program in spawning all sorts of outstanding physician scientists. It came to be actually regarded as a badge of honor. And the former Yellow Berets included not just these 10 Nobel laureates I mentioned, but essentially my entire generation of academicians. I mean, there have been studies done that show in the 80s and 90s an unbelievable percentage of medical school faculties, deans, presidents, and CEOs of medical centers were people who came out of this relatively small program. So it it had, talk about an unanticipated effect of the Vietnam War, this was one of the very few really positive things to come out of that. Your own mentoring of scientists and the importance of this dynamic is very important for the uh, development of scientific career. Absolutely. In fact, when young people say to me, you know, what's the most important thing? What are the most important decisions that I can make in my career? I tell them far and away, the most important decision is whom you choose for your mentors. Typically, you get more than one shot at that. You know, maybe you get two at most three for different phases of your training. But the mentoring process is of extraordinary importance because learning how to do science, especially at a high level, is very much an apprenticeship experience. You can't look it up in a book. I always tell people, any, if it's really important, whatever it is, you can't find it in a book. You gotta learn firsthand experience. So it's basically an apprenticeship experience, and that's what mentorship is really all about. And I wrote an article a few years ago in which I presented a sort of a scientific family tree of the 10 Nobel laureates that I mentioned to you, physicians, young physician scientists who came out of that Yellow Beret program at the NIH. And then, just like a family tree, I traced back who their mentors were, who their mentors' mentors were, and back, you know, their scientific grandparents, great-grandparents, and so on, for about four or five generations. The staggering finding was the number of Nobel laureates in the family tree. So about of, of the 10 of us, five actually trained in the laboratory of a Nobel laureate. And for the other five, you don't have to go back any further than a scientific grandparent to find a Nobel laureate. And then if you go back further in, in the family trees, about 50% of everybody in the family tree is a Nobel laureate. So what does that mean? Well, it really suggests that there are transferable elements involved in teaching people how to do high-level science. And in fact, again, the Nobel laureates are just the tip of the iceberg. If you, uh, if you look at any outstanding scientist and you begin to ask, well, who did they train with? You almost invariably find outstanding scientists. So there are transferable elements that can only be taught by mentoring and being apprenticed to such a person. And that's why I always tell the kids that the single most important decision you can make is the mentors that you choose. In my book, which I think would be of interest not just to scientists, but uh, to, to a very wide swath of people, but certainly one group is anybody who is involved in the mentoring process, either as a mentor or as a mentee. I have a whole chapter on my sort of 10 golden rules of, of mentoring. And one of them, uh, which relates directly to what you were just saying, I mean, that I was going after something which was very controversial, whether a receptor for a drug or hormone was something that, you know, actually existed or whether it was just a fanciful construct. But I believed in the idea and uh, I believe in taking prudent risks. 
And if, if you're going to be really successful at something, certainly in science, you've got to be willing to take risks. You've got to be bold. So that's one of my principles of mentorship is to encourage people to be bold and to take risks and to take on challenging projects. But I think probably the two most, well, I say there are 10, two of the most important are one, as a mentor, you have to individualize your mentoring style, because what works for one individual will be counterproductive for another. Everybody's different, and you have to really be a bit of a psychologist and learn what motivates people, what turns them on, what turns them off, etc. So individualization of approach is one very important one. The other, probably the single most important one, is to learn how to empower people. And this is a very, very delicate balance, uh, certainly in science, and I suspect in other walks of life, because you can err in two directions. On the one hand, you can basically lead them by the hand and basically use the student or research fellow almost as a technician, telling them at every stage exactly what to do to try to get to the goal that you're trying to reach. Now, you may get there faster if you do that, but... Even if you're successful, what happens is that the, uh, the student or trainee has no sense of intellectual ownership of the project. They don't feel that they did it. They know the boss did it. So that's no good. On the other extreme, you can pull back so far that they're adrift and they're really not getting anything from your mentoring. And there, if they, uh, they're much more likely to fail. And so that's really not very good. So you've got to find a way to sort of thread the needle so that you can give them as much direction as that particular individual needs but at the same time, giving them enough space so that when the project succeeds, they own it. And they can say, wow, I did this. I really did this. And that's important because when they go on to open their own laboratories, if they don't have that confidence when they leave your lab, uh, that's not good. And they will not be able, be able to be successful on their own. It's certainly good advice, not just for science, it's for, for any fields. It's really trying to bring out the best in them based on their abilities. Absolutely. And this is what, what leads to real empowerment. And then there are other things such as, for example, teaching people how to focus. I think focus is one of the most important attributes you can have almost regardless of what your career is. I often tell people there are four keys to success in science. The first is focus. The second is focus. The third is focus. And the fourth, you've got to figure out for yourself. But that focus is very important because scientists tend to often head off going for one goal, and then as soon as they get an unexpected result, they're sort of moving off to another, and that's not good. Another thing I try to encourage, and this is more of a personality trait, some people have it, some don't, is enthusiasm for what you're doing. If you're enthusiastic and really love the project you're working on, you really want to figure it out, you're much more likely to get to that goal than some who's kind of lackadaisical. Process in your research on the adrenaline receptors, going through all those frogs, that almost certainly is a focus. Absolutely. We were working, trying to isolate the receptor for reasons I don't have time to go into, from a very rich source, which were the erythrocytes, the red blood cells from grass frogs. But in order to do that, we had to obtain the blood every week from 2,000 frogs. And let me just tell you, that took a great deal of persistence and effort. That's another thing I try to encourage in all my mentees, persistence. Important results don't come fly by night, overnight, a few weeks, or even a few months' work. Basically, the work that I won the Nobel Prize for went on over several decades, and that's not unusual. 
You have to be willing to accept a tremendous amount of failure while just keeping the ultimate goal in mind and realizing that it's going to take a series of very small steps to get to the ultimate goal. You've had that focus, but yet you're, you're also adaptable and knowing just how to roll with the punches that life sometimes throws you. This is absolutely true. Life throws one punches and the research does too. You have to be adaptable, uh, no doubt about it. In my own personal life, I've dealt with the fact that both my parents had premature heart disease, coronary artery disease, arteriosclerosis. My father died at age 63 of his fourth heart attack when I was only in my early 20s. And I always felt I was a marked man, and I was. Because uh, at age 50, the same age my father had his first heart attack, I developed angina is pain due to not a heart attack, but what we call ischemia, which means at exercise, and I was a, a lifelong runner, I would feel discomfort. And I wound up with a quadruple coronary artery bypass surgery when I was only 51 years old. But through careful attention to my lifestyle and exercise and diet, uh, here I am 27 years later at age 78, and uh, I'm still going strong. How was that? I mean, you yourself are a cardiologist and you had to be a cardiac patient. Is that any more daunting being a patient when you have that sort of depth of knowledge about the system? You bet it is. There are some times in life when you're much better off not knowing what's coming, okay? Uh, but I knew exactly what was coming because I had taken care of so many patients uh, with bypass, who had gone through bypass surgery, and I became extraordinarily anxious. The two weeks between the time I was diagnosed by uh, cardiac catheterization and the time I ultimately had the surgery, I was a nervous wreck. And the recovery was not easy. It took a, a good couple of months. And as many patients who have coronary artery bypass surgery and who are on cardiac bypass, my head didn't work right for a few weeks. And, you know, depending on what you do for a living, having an absolutely clear head is more or less important. <laughs> if you basically live by your wits and you're a scientist, you've got to be 110% all the time. And for the first few weeks after the surgery, I was having a lot of trouble focusing and concentrating, even reading relatively uh, simple material. And then by about a month after the surgery, my head seemed to be clearing and I invited, I still hadn't, was not back at work, I invited several of my staff, my students and fellows to come to the house to catch me up on data, what had been going on. And so they came and we talked and I was able to participate fully and make critical comments, etc. Uh, and then it was just great and they left. And then uh, my wife came into the room to see how it had gone and she found me weeping. She said, Bob, what's wrong? Why are you crying? I said, these are tears of joy. I said, because my head is working again and I'm back. And yeah, that, that was uh, quite an experience. People reading your memoir, looking back on it, uh, looking at your life, what, what would you like them really to take home about pursuing a career in, in any field? So I think that there's an opportunity for each of us uh, to have, if we get the breaks, to have a fulfilling and very enjoyable career but the key is to identify the gifts that you have. In my case, I was very fortunate because my gift for doing research might have lay dormant and I may never have discovered it. Now, that wouldn't have been so bad because I loved clinical medicine. But for other people, they might miss their calling altogether. And if you can experience your work as a calling, and by what I mean by a calling, normally we associate that term with the priesthood and with clergy. It's when you feel basically that your destiny is to do a certain thing. If you can experience that, then 
you basically don't work for a living. I mean, I could have retired 15 or 20 years ago, but why would I? I mean, people tend to think that artists and scientists are opposite ends of a spectrum, but we're not, not at all. Uh, we're creative people, and our creativity is an expression of who we are and what we do. And basically, I've never felt that I work for a living. I mean, I'm just doing what I do. Uh, which for many years now has been just the research, but for decades was a combination of looking after people and being a real physician and research in the laboratory. So I think it's all about finding what your calling is. And the best way to do that for young people is to explore as many avenues as you can, because unless you try something, you will not know uh, whether you have a proclivity for it and whether you have any talents in that direction. And I think the issue of having talents is important. We're all born with certain deficiencies and certain strengths. And identifying your strengths is really important. If you're not good at math, Look, do me a favor. Don't, don't try to be an astrophysicist, okay? That's not going to work, no matter how much you may love it. So what you've got to do is somehow align what you really enjoy with some area where you were born with at least some strengths in that area. We were just talking with Dr. Robert Lefkowitz. He's the author of the new memoir, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Stockholm, Fueled Adventures of an Accidental Scientist. Dr. Lefkowitz, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you, sir. It's been my pleasure. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.